Well, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 is where we have come in our study of the ultimate book of the Bible. And you were probably expecting this morning to get a message on the church in Ephesus. But actually, we're going to save Ephesus for next week. And we're going to be talking about the church in Smyrna and the church in Thyatira. Last week, we introduced these seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And we concluded with the observation that as you read through these letters, it becomes abundantly clear that Christ is really only concerned with three things in the church. As the Lord Jesus Christ looks into our congregation this morning, as he sees us gathered in his name, his eyes are searching into the hearts. He sees the spiritual thoughts, the mind of each of us, each of us and all of us together. And he is looking for three things, faith, hope, and love. And that is all of Christ's concern throughout these seven letters and also, obviously, throughout the rest of the New Testament. That as Jesus Christ writes to his churches and the Spirit of God speaks to us through the Word of God, everything has to do with an increase in our faith, an increase in our hope, and an increase in our love. Now, these three great virtues in Christ, faith, hope, and love, are manifest in the seven churches, in churches that are doctrinally pure, churches that are also morally excellent, churches that are active in good deeds serving one another, churches that are unafraid of the world and the persecution that comes against true followers of Christ. These are churches who are spiritually alert and who are listening to God's Spirit. That's what Christ exhorts the church to throughout chapters 2 and 3. And I want you to notice this, that all of these things can only be done by born-again believers. Only those who have personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are able to be the kind of spiritual victors who are increasing in faith, hope, and love. And that is Christ's concern for the church. Now we invite everyone to come and be a part of what God is doing here in creating faith, hope, and love in hearts that lack it. However, in that invitation is the expectation of repentance. Yes, this church is open to everyone. This church is open no matter what your background, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what language you speak even, no matter what your economic level, no matter how you dress or what your hair looks like, this church is open and available for everyone with the expectation that you come here in order to become Christ-like with faith, hope, and love that are in him. You see, if we invite the world in without repentance, then the church will no longer have the faith, hope, and the love that is characteristic of Christ, and we will become a non-lampstand. That it's only those who have a genuine faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ that can be the church that God calls us to be in these chapters. You know, I would rather have a handful of spirit-filled Christians meeting together to be built up in their faith than thousands of nominal Christians meeting together on Sunday. God can do much more with few 
who are sold out to his purposes, who hear what the Spirit says to the churches and are quick to obey the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, then with a budget of millions of dollars and a building that used to be a stadium. It's not about size and numbers. It's about what is in the heart of those who believe. That's what Christ speaks to in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And that's what we're going to be looking into this morning in his letter to the churches. And as we review and catch up, just a reminder, faith, hope, and love, those are the virtues of Christ that he is building into his people. That's the work of God in the world. The work of God is to create faith, hope, and love in the hearts of those who are Christians. And then when we talk about faith, this morning we're going to be looking into faith. And faith can be tested from without or from within. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be attacked. And there's two ways in which our faith is attacked. From those who are false friends, they are within the church, and they are identified as false teachers, false leaders in the church. Those who profess to know Christ, those who profess to be following Christ, but who are setting an example in word and in deed in going away from Christ and instead following a false Christ. Our faith will be tested by those who come from within our own churches and lead people astray from Christ. And so we must always be on guard against that. We'll focus on that next week. But this week we're going to focus on how our faith is tested from those who do not claim to be Christians and who are openly hostile to Christianity. In our culture, in our nation, we have all different kinds of religions and we have many who are not only not Christians, but who are against Christianity, who believe that Christianity is harmful or hurtful, and who are working to try to stop Christians from following Christ, from proclaiming Christ. And so this testing of our faith is called persecution. Now, the work of God in building the church is going to be opposed by the enemy. The enemy of the work of God, he's known as Satan or the devil, and the devil is going to go after our faith. He wants to destroy faith. And he can do it by sneaking in and doing it from within, or he can do it from attack from the outside. I want you to remember this. It's going to be our theme for the next couple of weeks, that this testing of our faith from within is done by infiltration. He infiltrates the church in order to lead it away from genuine faith. And there's a lot of that that we need to be aware of. But he also does it from without. The enemy comes at us from without with intimidation. So I use those two words that start with I so you can remember them. Infiltration and intimidation. And we must be on our guard against both. For if we do not stand against the infiltration of the enemy, or if we cower to the intimidation of the enemy, then we will grow weaker and weaker in faith. And we will not be what God has created us to be in Jesus Christ. This morning, we're taking a look at faith being tested from without, the persecution of the church by those who are not Christians and ultimately driven by Satan in the desire to intimidate the church to not publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ. So, faith in the churches, part one this week. Next week will be part two. Faith tested from without. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you now and we ask you to be our teacher. We recognize that we do not call any human being our teacher, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine word of God, is the only one worthy to be called our teacher. 
And so we want to open up his words. We want to understand his words. Help me to speak his words faithfully. And let us all hear what the Spirit says to the churches this morning so that our faith can be emboldened. Our faith can be strengthened. Our faith can be built up as we also face the intimidation of the world around us that is not friendly to faith in Christ. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen. So let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. The shortest of the seven letters. It's the letter to the church in Smyrna. And it focuses on this. Faith being tested from without. The intimidation of the enemy. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this letter to the church in Smyrna, let's talk a little bit about Smyrna. Remember, the seven churches here in Asia, Ephesus is the first one to receive the letter, and it would have been the port that is close to Patmos, and then these seven messengers from the churches would make the circuit around this road that connected all of these seven cities, Ephesus stopping first, and the messenger from Ephesus then would send the other six on to Smyrna, and they'd be getting fewer and fewer, until at last the last messenger comes down to Laodicea, bearing his copy of the book of Revelation, the letter of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're starting here with Smyrna because of how we're approaching this thematically and topically on the subject of faith being tested from without. And Smyrna is a great example of standing strong and faithful against the intimidation of the enemy. So the city of Smyrna, you see, is a port city. Just like Ephesus, Ephesus was on the water, Smyrna was also on the water, and they made them centers of trade. Smyrna was one of the great four cities in Asia at this time, Smyrna, Ephesus, Pergamum, and Sardis. Those four were the most important centers of population, commerce, government, culture, all of that among these seven churches. And Smyrna was a beautiful city. It reminds me of a place like Santa Barbara in California where you've got a beautiful coast, beautiful harbor, a beautiful city with beautiful buildings, and it was just a great place to live unless you were a Christian. It's very difficult to be a Christian in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, it had a hill called a Pagos and a rounded main street on which sat beautiful public buildings. The beautiful public buildings of the ancient world were not so much like our public buildings because they were temples. Here we live in a secular society, but they lived in a very religious society, and their religion was paganism. Paganism is the belief in many gods and the worship of gods who had control over all different aspects of the world and human affairs. And on this hill, the Pagos, with its beautiful public buildings, they had all kinds of different temples. But one of the temples that they had that was important to take note of was the temple to the goddess Roma. Here's some of the ruins from the ancient time there in Smyrna. 
Now, Smyrna is still a city today. It's called Izmir. It's the third largest city in Turkey with a population of about 3 million people. One of the few cities here that is still a prosperous city today. And Smyrna in the ancient world was one of the first cities to make strong alliance with Rome. That Rome was not always the dominant world power. Before Rome had conquered the world, it was the Greeks who had dominant control over Asia Minor and all of these areas. But very early on, when Rome was starting to rise in power, Smyrna allied itself with Rome. They actually built a temple to the goddess who was supposed to personify Rome, Roma, in 195 B.C., So about 300 years before this letter is being written, they had a temple in their city to the goddess of Rome. They also had temples that were devoted to the worship of the Roman emperor. They were designated as the warden of the temple to the emperor in 26 AD, shortly before the death of Jesus Christ or the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And so for a long time, Smyrna had close connections with the city of Rome, including the worship of the city of Rome and its emperor. Now, that is going to play into the persecution that the Christians in Smyrna faced. While Smyrna was a beautiful city, while Smyrna was a populous city, it was a city that was extremely devoted to the Roman spirit that was a religious political fusion. And that religious political fusion was incompatible with Christian faith. Christians could submit to the emperor. Christians could submit to the governor. Christians could obey the laws. But they could not worship Caesar as if he were a god. And they could not worship Rome as if there was a goddess who was the spirit of that city. They could not participate in the paganism that was essential to the government essential to the culture, essential to the economy of a city like Smyrna and many others that were in this area. As we read in our scripture reading, 1 Peter chapter 4, just a little while ago, you heard about some of the idolatry and immorality that was a part of the culture in the first century and after and before, and that the Christians who were living in this area that Peter was writing to would be blasphemed. They would be spoken against. They would be slandered by the people around them who were surprised that they did not join them in their idolatry and in their immorality. And so that's the culture, that's the context that this letter is being written to. Christians who are suffering because they are standing apart in holiness from the unholy idolatry and immorality of the culture that surrounds them and is in power. Now, let's take a look at what Christ says to the church and how it is difficult to be a Christian in Smyrna, and yet they are succeeding and have nothing but commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ in this letter. Notice again verse 9. The first thing Jesus Christ says to the Christian church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they are Jews. So poverty, slander, tribulation. And the tribulation is more properly defined by the poverty and the slander. So we look at the outline for the lampstand in Smyrna. We see here that they have a rich poverty. They are slandered by the Jews and by the Romans. 
and that Christ is going to forewarn them about the trial that's coming up. Let's take a look at the slander that's coming at these people from the Jews and the Romans after we talk about their poverty. Let's talk about their poverty first, right? So I want you to turn from Revelation chapter 2 and come back to Hebrews chapter 10. The, Old Test- the New Testament is written against this backdrop, especially the later books of the New Testament, of persecution. In the book of Acts, you see persecution starting early in Jerusalem from the Jews, and then that the Jews are the ones who continue to drive persecution in the early founding of the church in each city, but that also the pagans start to take aim at this new Christian movement throughout the book of Acts. And then throughout the New Testament, there are a number of parts of it that are focused on how to respond to the persecution that we face as Christians that they faced and that we still face. In Hebrews chapter 10, look at what it says in verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that's referring to their salvation, their turning to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So what kind of pressure, what kind of tribulation was put upon the church in the first century? Well, you can read about it here in Hebrews, which is parallel to what Christ says to the church in Smyrna. They have a poverty. That word for poverty that we had in Revelation chapter 2 is the word for abject poverty. There was another word in the Greek that would describe those who were just poor, but they had something. This is the word for those who had nothing, that kind of poverty. And that kind of poverty was coming upon the church in Smyrna because of persecution. So often we as Christians, we think that persecution means they put you in jail, they torture you, and they kill you. And of course that is a part of persecution, but that's not how it starts. Persecution starts with social pressure. Persecution starts with economic pressure. And that social and economic pressure is the beginning of the testing of your faith. Are you willing to be thought to be weird for the sake of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to be thought narrow-minded, unintelligent, stubborn? Are you willing to be thought antiquated, out of date? Are you willing to be thought a self-righteous, holier-than-thou type of person? All kinds of social pressure is going to come against you, whether you're young or whether you're old, for following Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of the pressure that Satan brings to try to deter you from following Christ. And God allows in order to test your resolve to find out whether or not you're really serious about following him. And so the economic pressure is what comes together with that social pressure. People decide, well, I don't like you, I'm not going to hire you. I don't like you. I'm not going to work together with you. I'm not going to bring your business in to do what I need done. I'm going to find somebody that I like. And so the social pressure leads to the economic pressure. You can lose your job. You can lose your customers. And also then imprisonment. That's where we normally think of the pressure coming upon Christians is the official arm of the state, the governmental, the civil persecution and pressure. The power of the sword is brought to bear. And they forcefully take you to prison. And what happens when you're in prison? Well, one thing you're not doing while you're in prison is building your business. One thing you're not doing in in prison is becoming rich. 
But instead, you and your family, who depends upon you and your work, are becoming poor. And so, as these Christians in Smyrna were facing the same types of things that the writer to the Hebrews refers to, that they were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, they were being imprisoned, and they were having their property plundered by the state, they became very poor. And after years of this, after decades of this, that leads to the extreme poverty that we find in the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. But their poverty is a rich poverty because Jesus Christ says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. There's two different kinds of riches, and you have to decide which one you're going to pursue. You can pursue riches in this world, money, Or you can pursue spiritual riches, a spiritual treasure, which is the treasure of faith, hope, and love. And so often these are incompatible. You have to choose whether you are going to serve mammon or whether you are going to serve Jesus Christ. That choice was made by the people in Smyrna. They chose the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore they had physical poverty, but they had spiritual riches. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples in the beginning when he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now I quote there from his Sermon on the Mount as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, because in the Gospel of Matthew it adds poor in spirit. But in the Gospel of Luke it just says poor. And I think that both are true. It's blessed to be poor in spirit, but also so often physical poverty and spiritual riches go together because of the socioeconomic pressure that comes upon us as Christians. Now, we here in America have largely been spared from a lot of that socioeconomic pressure for the last two centuries, but not anymore. The social and economic pressure is going to be coming upon you, your family, and your children. Some of you are going to start to lose your jobs. Some of you are going to start to lose your opportunities. Some of you are going to start to be debanked. Some of you are going to start to have property seized by corporations and by the government. Some of you might be imprisoned at some point. And we may start to learn why Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. We might participate in this rich poverty very soon. Don't be surprised. We've been forewarned. Now, the rich poverty is not only spoken of about the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples, but also exemplified. For he himself said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In Luke chapter 9, verse 13. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, speaking of the apostles and their rich poverty, he put it this way, We apostles are poor, yet we make many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like him. We end up losing everything in this life, in this world, but we gain everything that really matters, just like the apostle Paul did. And James wrote to the very poor Christians in Jerusalem in his day, in and around Jerusalem, as they'd been suffering persecution for years and become very poor as a result of that persecution. He said this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Now those who have much have much to fear about losing. Those who have little have nothing to fear about losing. And so for those of us who are rich in this present world, let us always be checking our hearts and make sure that we're not putting our hope in the vanity of riches, but that we're putting our hope in the living God and that our chiefest treasure 
is not our home or our insurance policy or our retirement plan, but that our richest treasure is the faith, hope, and love that we are pursuing with a whole heart. Amen? Amen. You're poor, Christ says to the church in Smyrna, but you are rich. Let's see it from God's perspective. Now, secondly, let's take a look at the slander that's coming at this church, first from the Jewish community and then from the Roman community. The Jewish population that stirred up animosity against Christians in Smyrna is identified as those who propose to be Jews but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. You see that there in the text in verse 9. Now, that is very politically incorrect language. We are not allowed to tell Jewish people that they are not true Jews and that they are actually led by Satan rather than being led by God. That is not something that most preachers are ever going to countenance. They would be against that kind of terminology. But that is the terminology that the Lord Jesus Christ uses. That's what got him killed by the Jews. That's why they crucified him, because he said things like this about them. Now, you can choose not to say those things about the Jews. You can say, well, you know, they're good people, they're good neighbors, they believe in the Ten Commandments, I appreciate a lot of the work that they're doing. You can say all that. Or you can be like the Lord Jesus Christ and say that you are sons of your father, the devil, and that you do not have eternal life, you do not know God, you have rejected Jesus Christ and God's purposes for your life, and you are, in fact, being led astray by demons. Now, if you choose to do that, you're going to have the mob coming after you, and they're going to call you all kinds of names, and they're going to slander you, and they're going to say you're an anti-Semite and all of that. Well, you have to make your choice. Do you want to be acceptable in the eyes of our culture, or do you want to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, you make the Jews angry, they can bring some pressure on you in our time, just as they were able to bring pressure on people in that first century. And we have a record of all the persecutions that the Jewish people brought, starting with Jesus Christ, then moving on to his apostles, and then going to all the churches, not only in the New Testament, but even in the history of the church that follows after that. A few years ago, we were in the book of Thessalonians. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you have some very hard words from a Jewish Christian named Paul directed to Jewish non-Christians. And he says this about them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last." Again, if you were to preach like this in our world today and the media gets wind of it and you go viral, you're in trouble. You're going to have people coming after you. You can't talk this way about non-Christian Jews. But that's the way the Bible talks about it. We need to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. We need to speak the way that Jesus speaks. We need to be filled with his spirit. And his spirit is not what we find in the Christian bookstore. His spirit is what we find in the words of the scriptures. That's where we go to find the spirit of Christ. 
Now, does Jesus love the Jewish people? Immensely. Does Paul love the Jewish people? Immensely. But does he still speak the truth about their sin and their rebellion against God? Yes, because that is required of those who love, that we speak a word of warning before it's too late for those who are on the broad way to destruction. Turn with me also to the book of Acts. Let's take a look at an example of just what Paul is talking about here, about the Jews opposing the apostles and trying to stop them from speaking to the Gentiles. Back in Acts chapter 13, the book of Acts records much persecution against the earliest Christians and the attempt to preach the gospel among the nations. But the instigators, the first opponents of the gospel in each place throughout the first century in the book of Acts is the Jewish unbelievers, the Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. Acts 13 verse 44 says this, The next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Notice that. This is an example the Holy Spirit is giving to us. We want to be like Paul and Barnabas, who are not cowards, but who speak out boldly. And this is what they said. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that, of course, brings a lot of joy to the Gentiles, but the Jews are pretty angry about that, and you see what they do there in the rest of the chapter, driving them out from their city and even pursuing them as they continue into the next city at Iconium. So the animosity of the Jewish people who rejected Jesus Christ is a repeated emphasis and a repeated theme throughout the New Testament. And it's here in Revelation chapter 2 as Christ identifies the synagogue in Smyrna as a synagogue of Satan. Those closest to us often bring the most fierce opposition. That is, those whose faith and beliefs are most similar to our faith and beliefs will often bring the most fierce opposition to us out of jealousy. Did you see that there in the text as we were reading it? In verse 45, they were filled with jealousy. Because those who were converting to Christ among the people of the city were largely those who were God-fearing Greeks. People who had been interested in the message that the Jews were proclaiming, interested in the scriptures that the Jews were reading, interested in the one God that the Jews worshipped rather than the many pagan gods. And so as these converts to Judaism become converts to Christ, well, that is costing them followers. And when you lose followers, you lose money and you lose influence. And what do people want? Well, they want power and money. That's what they want. And so they'll attack whatever is taking away their power and their money. And that's why the spirit of Satan is involved with this persecution because they're doing Satan's will from evil motives even if they don't know that they are serving the enemy by attacking the church of Jesus Christ. Now, this is also true of Muslims. I don't want you to get the idea that I think the Jews are the, the problem in the world today. There's so much talk about Jews and Muslims and Christians. 
A lot of Christians are as much of a problem as the Jews. And there's a lot of churches that are around here that are not churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, but are churches of Satan as well. Okay? So I'm not singling out the Jews. I'm just pointing them out as one group of people that oppose the gospel. And true Christians in our day get more attacks from false Christians than we do from Jewish people. The Jewish people are kind of content to leave us alone because we're not stealing a lot of their people and they're not stealing a lot of our people. But the Christians, the true Christians and the false Christians, that's where a lot of fire is going on because they don't want us converting their people and taking them away. So the Jews, the Christians, the Muslims, any of them, whether it's paganism, whether it's secular humanism, any religion in the world that opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ is a work of Satan. Do you understand that? Sometimes people get the idea that Satanism is, is just what witchcraft is. And witchcraft is a very obvious, pure form of Satanism. But rabbinic Judaism is also Satanic. False Christianity is also Satanic. Islam is also Satanic. That these Jewish people are not true Jews, come back to Revelation chapter 2, He says they call themselves Jews, but they are not, does not mean that we are true Jews. We are not true Jews. We are Gentiles who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. To be a true Jew means that you are, in fact, a descendant of Abraham, but that you also are believing in God the way that Abraham believed in God. And that would mean in our time to be a Christian. And so to be a true Jew in our day is to be a physical descendant and a spiritual descendant of Abraham. So many Christians make the mistake that when the Bible says these are not true Jews, they say, well, that means we are. It doesn't say that. You're bringing that into the text. The text doesn't say that. And nowhere does the text say that. All right, just wanted to make that caveat. Now, remember that this goes back to the time of Jesus. This Jewish persecution starts with Jesus himself. Actually, it goes back to the prophets. They did this to all the prophets before Jesus. But when Jesus came, they also slandered Jesus to the Romans in order to get them, the Romans, to persecute their rivals that they were jealous of. The Gospels tell us that the reason why Jesus was handed over to Pilate was because the Jews were jealous and that Pilate knew that they were jealous and that's why they were bringing these accusations, these slanders against him. And what did they do? What did they say about Jesus when they were trying to get Pilate to put him to death? Well, they said, he says we shouldn't pay our taxes. He says there's another king and that he himself is the king. So it was political. They had to bring political charges against the Christians in order to get the state to persecute. And that's the same way it is today. We as Christians, we submit to the government. We're good citizens. We pay our taxes. We obey the laws. We love our neighbors. We build our families. We're a blessing to the nation around us. And yet we are slandered as if we are the problem in society and everything comes from us Christians. And that we're disloyal and dangerous and subversive and revolutionary and violent and all of this type of thing. It's all slanders. Just like it was slanders against Jesus Christ. The same thing Satan did then. It's the same thing he did at the end of the first century. It's the same thing he's doing now. And it's always been his plan, his tactic, is to slander. That's uh, what his name means. He's the accuser of the brethren. He slanders and accuses. Now, as the Jews slandered the Christians to the Romans, the Romans also had their bias, their slander. The Greco-Roman world, the Gentiles, they also came to hate Christians as they were motivated and influenced by the enemy. 
The enemy hates Christianity. Everyone who's under his leadership, under his sway, is going to believe the lies that Satan throws against Christians. And so let's look at the first century and see how the Romans slandered Christians and how that carries over to today also. As I told you, Smyrna was a longtime ally of Rome, and they worshipped the goddess Roma, and they had a center for emperor worship where you would burn incense to Caesar as a god and say Caesar is Lord, and you'd get a certificate that said that you were a good citizen. And Christians couldn't do that. And so the Romans started to say, well, these Christians are a problem. They're not loyal to the empire. They must be trying to overthrow Roman rule, which was exactly the opposite of the truth. But that's what they believed. Because Satan was misleading them, he was guiding them to believe these lies. Now, in A.D. 64, Tacitus records how Nero blamed the fire in Rome upon the Christians. Listen to what Tacitus writes about the fire that broke out in A.D. 64 and Nero's response to it and how the Romans viewed the Christians. Not just Nero, but Tacitus and all of the Romans. Listen to how he viewed them. Nero blamed the Christians, I'm quoting from Tacitus in translation, who are hated for their abominations and punished them with refined cruelty. Christ, from whom they take their name, was executed by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. They're named after a guy we executed. That doesn't sound good. Stop for a moment, this evil superstition reappeared, not only in Judea, where was the root of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things sordid and abominable from every corner of the world come together, Thus, first, those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested. And on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire itself as for their hatred of mankind. So he says that we committed abominations. He says it's an evil superstition. He says our founder was executed as a criminal. He says that we hate mankind. That was the general Roman perspective on Christians at that time. Now, if you go to Harvard and ask most people at Harvard what their view of Bible-believing Christians is, they'll probably say some similar things, right? It's dressed up a little differently, but it's basically the same spirit. The pagans, they slandered Christians, and we can read about what kinds of things they said about Christians in early historical documents of the church. They accused Christians of immorality because they have love feasts. You know what happens at those love feasts, right? And they accused Christians of incest. Because they call each other brother and sister and they're married. They marry their brother and sister. They're incestuous. They accuse them of cannibalism. You know they eat flesh and blood in their services? These people are horrible. They accuse them of atheism. They don't worship the gods. They're irreligious. Our whole culture is built upon this worship of the gods and they don't believe in the gods. They say these idols are empty. They're atheists. They accuse them of being disloyal to the government because they won't worship Caesar. And... The government found them to be unintelligent and stubborn. So incestuous, immoral, cannibalistic, atheistic, disloyal, unintelligent, stubborn, not a very pretty picture. You know, Christians in the first century had an image problem, right? They needed to hire some good advertisers to get out there and give them a better image. Well, no matter how godly we live, no matter how much we love our neighbors, the enemy is going to slander us. And you can't blame Christians for the slander of the enemy. I'm not saying Christians are perfect. I'm not saying we do everything right. You'll hear me preach against Christians a lot. But most of the things that Christians are accused of in our world today are completely untrue, completely unfounded. And it's because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And he is the slanderer. He slanders through the Jewish people. He slanders through the secular 
people who might be more like the Romans in, in our society. We're going to be slandered. Get used to it. And we're going to suffer. And here's the warning. Back in the text, Revelation chapter 2, it says there, Behold, in the second half of verse 10, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. So he warns them about this imminent time of persecution, this imminent testing that is coming upon them. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So they have been suffering. They're poor. They are slandered. They're suffering this social economic pressure. But the pressure is going to get turned up again, probably, uh, in the coming days. Well, it's definitely going to be coming again, but probably has already happened in the past. And they're going to face imprisonment. And Christ tells them about this to warn them in advance. We are forewarned. And you know, the whole New Testament is full of warnings to you as a Christian. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they called me the son of the devil, they're going to say the same thing about you. If they say I'm demon-possessed, what do you think they're going to say about you? You're crazy too. And so Christ has warned us from the very beginning until the very end of the New Testament, warning after warning. And we, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, we are commanded to not be surprised. When it happens, we're just not supposed to be like, what? Where did this come from? I wasn't expecting this kind of treatment. I mean, I'm a good neighbor and I'm a good citizen. And I, I work hard and I, I love people around me. Why am I getting treated like this? Christ told you. Okay? So stop acting all surprised. God not only commands you not to be surprised, he also commands you not to fear. Notice what it says there in the text. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Christ knows when you're going to suffer. He knows how you're going to suffer. He knows how long you're going to suffer. And his command to you, the one who knows everything, so we so often get worried because we don't know. Well, well what's going to happen? And it causes us to worry about the what ifs. God knows all the what ifs. And he says, don't fear. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Whenever you find yourself fearing, because of the slanders of the enemy, because of the hatred of the world, because the people who are in power seem to be mobilizing against you and setting things up so that they can take your property and they can put you in prison. Don't fear. You are commanded not to fear. And if you fear, you are being disobedient to the command of Jesus Christ. It's a comforting word. Because the command of Jesus Christ not to fear is perfectly reasonable. It's perfectly rational. Look at the way he describes himself in verse 8. These are the words of the first and the last. Before Rome, Jesus. Before Greece, Jesus. Before Babylon, Jesus. Before Egypt, Jesus. Always has been, always will be, the first and the last, the Almighty. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend you. If you believe that, then what do you have to fear from Washington? What do you have to fear from Moscow? What do you have to fear from any army or any ruler or any politician? Nothing. They are here for a moment and then they are gone. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is your brother. He is your friend. Why should you be afraid of mortal man who dies? And look at the way Jesus Christ describes himself again in verse 8. Who died and came to life. So they put you in prison. Jesus was put in prison. So they kill you. Well, Jesus was killed. 
Where is he now? You follow Jesus Christ, and as he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And if you are faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. So it's just a question of whether or not you believe that. And if you believe it, then you won't fear. But if you start to fear, that reveals your faith is weak, your faith is faltering, and you need to ponder anew what the Almighty can do if he befriends you. And he has. He has befriended you. So his command not to fear is perfectly reasonable. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. That's a promise from Proverbs 29, verse 25. Solomon knew it a thousand years before Christ. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Just wait for it. And the wicked man will be gone and will be ruling and reigning in heaven forever, in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, there's a lot more that we could say about this that Jesus teaches us. The, the New Testament is full of wonderful teaching on facing persecution fearlessly and like Christ. I just want to read for you Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, which says this. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, that's Satan we've conquered, and by the word of their testimony... For they loved not their lives even unto death. That's Revelation 12, 11. They loved not their lives even unto death. Now, I love my life. I got a great life. I love my job, love my church, love my family, love my place, love my house. I love my life. But I would rather die the death of a martyr than live the life of someone who denies Christ. Death is not something to fear. So I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my health. It's all going. So don't fear the power of death. Christ is risen. Now, the church in Smyrna took this to heart, and they believed it, and they grew strong in it. About 15 years later, we have a letter from another Christian pastor to the church at Smyrna, and it's survived all these thousands of years and has come down to us. It was by a man named Ignatius. And Ignatius was on his way to Rome to be killed as a Christian martyr. And on his way to Rome, he was writing letters to different churches, kind of like these seven letters that we have here in Revelation. And one of his letters went to the church at Smyrna. And he starts off that letter by saying this, The church in Smyrna is filled with faith and love and adorned with holiness. And he says, I have observed that you are perfected in an immovable faith. The faith that they had here, that Christ exhorts them to, do not fear. They didn't. They persevered in an immovable faith, and that was evident over a decade later when Ignatius observed the church. And it would continue to be evident in the church in Smyrna well into the middle of the second century for another awesome document from early church history that survives to us is the martyrdom of Polycarp. I want to talk a little bit about Polycarp. Polycarp's name means much fruit. Poly, much, karpos, fruit. And Mr. Muchfruit was a disciple of the Apostle John. That He was a young man when this letter was written. Probably when this letter was received at the Church of Smyrna, Polycarp was sitting in the congregation being in his mid to late 20s. As a disciple of the Apostle John, he was late 20s when he got the letter. He later became the leader of the church. They called them bishops back then. And then in AD 155... 
60 years after he got the letter, he was himself martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Mr. Muchfruit, he's a hero of mine. He was a faithful servant of the church. He was a faithful opponent also of false teachers. The most famous false teacher in the early church in his time was named Marcion. And when Marcion was in Smyrna and he confronted Polycarp, he said, recognize us. He wanted to say, you need to recognize that we are Christians. Stop talking about us like we're heretics. And Polycarp responded, I recognize the firstborn of Satan. He uses the same type of language that he learned from the Lord Jesus Christ in this letter. That if you are teaching contrary and you're leading people astray, then you are not a servant of Christ. But you are like that synagogue of Satan. And he was the arch-heretic, the firstborn of Satan in Polycarp's eyes. Well, God honored his servant with a long life and a long ministry, and at the end he gave him the honor of an honorable death by dying for Christ. When he was being tried... According to the records of the church that was sent out in the martyrdom of Polycarp, he was commanded to deny Christ, commanded to curse Christ. And he said, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And he died. It was to this poor, suffering church, where Polycarp was a young man, that he exhorts them, and now the Spirit of God exhorts us today with the same exhortation, have no fear of what Satan and those who are under his sway can do to you. God wants a church full of people who cannot at all be intimidated. That's our call. Each one of us, everyone that is sitting here, from the youngest to the oldest, You have to make up your minds. Are you going to love your life or are you going to love Jesus Christ? What's most important to you? Will you die for him today? Will you die for him tomorrow? Next year? Will you lose everything? Don't be surprised if you're asked to. And the way that you're living your life today already tells you the answer. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you love the Lord Jesus Christ daily, you take up your cross and you follow him and you're not at all dissuaded by the slanders that come against you, the social and the economic pressure that is being brought to bear upon true Christians. And you stay with the true church and you stay with the word of God and you establish yourself in the faith and you lay down your life for the brethren. Then, When you are called upon to renounce Christ, you will answer like Polycarp.